Today we look at our third value here at Calvary as we continue with our series on vision and values. Last week we looked at focus on the feet and spent time in the book of John looking at how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and recognizing the call to be vulnerable to trusted brothers and sisters. We talked about our need for forgiveness and God's call to forgive. We looked at how these verses and others like them in scripture have called us as a church to value vulnerability, humility, and service. Today, we look at the last value of this series, commitment to community. Today, we'll be heading to Acts chapter 2 to read about the early church and what their community was like. May the way that they lived and interacted with each other be an inspiration to us. Join me as I read the text this morning, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 42 to 47. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to follow along. And if not, the words will be up on the screen behind me. We read the word of the Lord, Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Lessons the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. I pray this in your name. Amen. Back in the days of the Old Testament, during the time of the prophets, there was a man named Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the armies of the king of Aram. The Lord had blessed him, and he was highly thought of, known to be a good man and a valiant soldier. But for all the good things taking place in Naaman's life, there was one fatal problem. Naaman had leprosy. Leprosy is a sickness that, if left untreated, can cause deformities of the hand and feet, blindness, and kidney failure. And though we can treat it today through antibiotics, in the time of Naaman, it was a death sentence. Now word came to Naaman through his Israelite servant girl that a prophet of the God of Israel could cure him of this terrible disease. So the king of Aram sent Naaman to the king of Israel asking that he cure this valiant, well-regarded army commander of his uncurable ailment. How do you think the king of Israel responded? In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, we read, As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and, and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. He responded exactly as we would expect, and most likely exactly as we would have ourselves. Are you kidding me? What do I look like, a miracle worker? How am I supposed to cure the uncurable? Naaman had come to the king of Israel with an impossible goal. Are we familiar with the concept of, of an impossible goal? Uh, I'm, you know, I'd kind of heard of them before, but since I'm not exactly the poster child for self-improvement, I, uh, I did a bit of research on them this week. An impossible goal is when you set out to do something that you have no business being able to do. 
But the journey towards the goal improves other areas of your life. And every once in a while, maybe you actually achieve it. It's like that, that slogan you see around every once in a while, shoot for the moon and you'll land among the stars. Maybe it's being able to afford to buy a house on a, on a single income. You may not be able to afford the house in the time frame you wanted, but in the attempt, you become better at budgeting, at managing your money. Maybe it's trying to make a professional sports team. You may not make the team, but the things you do in your attempt lead to a healthier, more active lifestyle. Maybe it's being in a band that makes it big. You may never have a song that hits the Billboard Top 100, but in your pursuit, all of your practicing has left you a much better musician. It's going to be different for each person, but the idea is that the pursuit of this goal will, in other ways, better your life. For Naaman, it was being cured of leprosy. For a vast majority of the churches in the world today, it's trying to be the church we see in our text this morning in Acts 2. I mean, this church is the mountaintop. Maybe it's because it was the church's first iteration and there wasn't anybody to copy. There wasn't a, a church down the street with the lights and the fog machine and the rocking band that plays all the songs you like. There was no church on, on the other side of town that had the best preaching you'd ever heard. Or that church your, your other friends went to with a children's program that met all the needs of all your kids exactly how you hoped it would. There was nothing to compare to. And maybe that was beneficial, but I don't think that was the reason for their success. I don't think the lack of competition was why the early church became the impossible goal that the rest of us have been trying to reach ever since. The early church, the church we see in Acts 2, was driven by their love for each other and their love for the Lord. They were on fire. They were excited. They were pumped about being together and worshiping. As we read in the verses of our text this morning, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that excitement about being together, that excitement for the word spilled out into everyday life. They, they worshiped and fellowshiped together in their everyday environments. It wasn't just a church thing, right? They, they hung out in the temple courts like they used to. They just talked about different things now. They spent time in each other's houses, eating food and enjoying each other's company. Not only that, but they were also so close as a group that when someone was struggling, particularly financially, a different brother or sister who had excess would go to the length of selling property and possessions to make sure that no one was left in need. This church was close. They knew each other. They cared about each other. They sacrificed for each other. This was the culture of the community of the church that we see in Acts 2. And what's more, we see that this wasn't just some social club. It wasn't a sealed group living in a bubble. This church wasn't a clique. The reputation with those not inside their fellowship was a good one. People like these Christians, they, they like the community that they have built. Or people liked these Christians. They liked the community that they had built, and they wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to join in. We can see by the final verse of our text this morning that Luke, the writer of Acts, wants to leave no doubt that there is an important connection between community life, the community that the church had built, and the favor, the approval the community experienced with outsiders. They weren't seen as an exclusive social club. The early church was a blessing not only to its own, but also to those who did not yet hold to their beliefs. 
and those who were not yet a part of their community, and they were anxious to join. Now, what church wouldn't want this? Daily, people are being saved here. The community is close-knit. They know each other, right? They love each other. They sacrifice for each other. They are eating together. They're celebrating their faith in the workplace together. Their needs are being met physically and spiritually. This church was the mountaintop experience of churches. We're all familiar with a mountaintop experience. Often we hear about them when we go to a Bible camp or, or some type of retreat. For me, it would be the trips I would take with the youth group to the youth conventions our denomination puts on every two years. It's getting away, not being caught up in real life and having an awesome experience. You, you go to these retreats, you feel fed. The worries of everyday life seems far away, and you're just caught up in great teaching and fellowship. And we call it a mountaintop experience because it's like what Peter and John felt when they were on the mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah showed up. And Peter's like, well, let's just stay here forever because this is awesome. Like, I don't want this to change. We should just hang out here for all the times. As Peter found out, mountaintop experiences, they don't last forever. But they do leave a mark. And when you come down the mountain and you're back in the valley of everyday life, you can, you can look up and, and see where you were and draw encouragement from that time you spent at the top. I feel like Acts 2 was the mountaintop experience for the church. We're always looking at that going, man... What a time that was. What a time that must have been. And it becomes our impossible goal. Because as awesome as it looks, we can't imagine how in the world we'll ever get back there. Right? We look at the culture of Christianity today, the, the culture that we have in our churches today, and we don't know, or we know that we don't look a whole lot like the Acts 2 church. For some of our churches, maybe that's because American individualism has ingrained itself so deeply in the people at the pulpit and those in the pews that we struggle with the interdependence that Acts 2 Church relied upon. For some of our churches, maybe it's because we've become so fearful of the influence of the world outside our church doors, our, our Christian bubble, that we do not want to create a culture that would welcome them in out of the concern that they might influence our community. For some of our churches, maybe it's because we don't even know where to start to begin to look like the Acts 2 church. It sounds good and everything, but man, that's a lot of change from what we're used to, and we don't really even know how to begin, and just thinking about it gets us tired, so maybe we'll just not do all of that. We live in a world overrun by sin, and the reasons that the church is no longer on the mountaintop, the reasons that the Acts 2 church seems like an impossible goal, are many. It's hard. Where would we even start? After Naaman had made his impossible goal known to the king of Israel, and after the king had had his understandable freak out, the prophet Elisha sent the king a message. Stop freaking out and send the man to me, and then he will know that there is a prophet still in Israel. So the king sent Naaman to Elisha, and when Naaman arrives at Elisha's door, Elisha sends him a messenger saying, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now this response angered Naaman. I thought he would come out and, and like put on a big show, you know, do all the things, maybe wave his hands around or set some things on fire. Instead, he sends me to bathe in the dirty waters of the Jordan River. We have beautiful, clean rivers back home. 
Couldn't I have cleaned in one of them instead? This is not what I was expecting. I came all this way for nothing. Nathan was angered by the simplicity and the humility required of what Elisha asked. And we can relate to that, right? How do we become a church more like the Acts 2 church, a church where people want to come? And there's, there's a part of us that wants to appeal to the attractional model like Naaman wanted, right? He wanted the show. He wanted to hear what he expected to hear, and so it is for us. How, how do we get people to come to our church? We do the things that other growing churches are doing. We get lights, fog, and a big band. We, we get the best, most attractive, and physically fit preacher we can find. We make sure that we have all the ministries anyone could ever want so that they can come and they can relax and they can enjoy the show. This is what will draw people in. And I'm not saying that there is necessarily anything wrong with lights and loud music. And while you guys are stuck looking at this mug, because it's the face I was given, and it would definitely be better for me to, personally, if I took care of this body that I was given, and, and hey, it's great when, when churches have all the bells and whistles and programs for people to plug into. I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves, just like it would not be bad for Elisha to call on the name of the Lord or wave his hands around or any of the things that Naaman was expecting. What I am saying is that those are not things that we see expressed in the Acts 2 church. All those things are cool, but they do not meet the needs that the Acts 2 church met. And while those rivers in Naaman's homeland may have been more attractive, they did not meet the need that the Jordan River that. The Jordan River was muddy and unappealing, but it is where Elisha sent Naaman. The Acts 2 church didn't set up a service for people to come in and be wowed and amazed. The Acts 2 church had a commitment to community. They didn't intend to entertain. They intended to get involved. And so Naaman starts to stomp off, but his servants approach him and they said, hey, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. If he'd asked you for a fortune, you would have paid it. If he'd asked you to go and slay a giant, you would have brought him a giant's head. You, you know, you could have done it. Why not do it when he tells you to do the simple thing? Sometimes the simple things are the harder things. Naaman didn't want to get in the muddy waters of the Jordan River. And we don't necessarily want to get into the muddy waters of deep interpersonal relationships. We don't always agree on the same things, right? Those of us sitting in the pews, our political views don't always match up. We aren't always on the same socioeconomic background. And as, as awesome as I think it is in our church here at Calvary, we have quite a few people who grew up in, in different cultures, and we love that. But that also can make it hard sometimes as we navigate each other's cultures. It's easy to go to church where you can sit down and take in the show and leave. It's like going to the movies or sitting down to binge some Netflix. You get something out of it. You get something out of it. It is edifying. But it doesn't bring you into the mission. It's harder to go to a church where you will be invited to be part of the community. Then you are getting into people's lives, you're getting to their houses, they're coming to yours, you're taking time out of your week to go to the Bible studies, right? You're, you're talking about Bible stuff outside of the regular areas. You may have to be there when people go through hard things. At some point, you'll have to be vulnerable with others because life is just too hard and you can't, you can't keep it all to yourself anymore. This type of church is messier. It's more involved. It's more personal which can be more work. 
But as we see in the Acts 2 church, this is what the church was meant to be. This is God's design. God strengthens his people and unites his church as they strive together in their commitment to community. Naaman listened to the wisdom of his servants. He went to the Jordan River and he washed in it seven times. And when he had finished, as Elisha had told him it would, his flesh was restored and became young and new like the skin of a young man. Naaman could have gone and washed in the rivers in his homeland and nothing would have happened. And unless God had been at work in the rivers of the Jordan, he wouldn't have been cleansed by that river alone either. As we look at the impossible goal of becoming an Acts 2 church, it is so comforting to remember the one who is actually building the church. The one who is doing the real work in the hearts of people. The church in our text this morning did all these awesome and admirable things. They set up this community that cared for each other and sacrificed for each other. They were a fun and exciting bunch to be around. They welcomed those outside in, and, and the transition was smooth and seamless. They, they talked about their faith openly. They were excited to sit under the teaching of their leaders. But it was not on the basis of these admittedly awesome things that the church grew. Read with me the last line of our text this morning. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It is God who grows the church. He is the one that does the work in the hearts of the people that come to faith in him. He is the one doing the saving. He is the one who loved us so much, loved all of us broken people in our messy churches so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take all of our sin upon himself and to pay the price for it by dying on a cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, so that we could be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. So when we believe in Jesus, when we are resting in his work for our salvation, and the Bible tells us that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when we believe in Jesus, God no longer sees our sinful rags, but instead, he sees the pure robes of Christ's righteousness. God is the one doing all of this. He is the one that saves. He is the one that grows his church. He saves people at the churches where you sit back and you take in the show. And he saves people at the churches where you might think the theology is a little whack. He saves people at churches that have hurt people. He saves people in churches that have grown tired and old and cranky. And he saves people at churches that are young and ignorant and immature. God uses churches to save people. But he's the one that grows the church. And our failures will not get in the way of his mission. Here at Calvary, we have a commitment to community. We value our neighbor, instruction, openness, and fellowship. Not because we think we're better than anyone else, but because that is the model that we see in Scripture. And while that goal to be an Acts 2 church may feel impossible, we serve a God who specializes in the impossible. The God who cured Naaman of leprosy will grow his church despite all the struggles that come its way. So church, let us love one another well. Let us sacrifice for one another. Let's get together outside of the Sunday morning service for we know that church happens during the week. Let's intentionally meet together, eating and fellowshipping. Let's forgive each other. Let's overlook what makes us different and focus on what we have in common. Let's be hungry for the word. And as the Lord works in us, shaping us into a community that is a reflection of his love for us, may our community outside be drawn to how well we care for, respect, and treasure each other.
You guys are fantastic. I'm so glad that this is the church that God has called me to. I'm so glad that this is the church that God has called you to. I'm so glad that this is where I have had the privilege of pastoring for the past four years, and I'm excited for the many years God has in store for us as we rest on him and continue to build community here at Calvary. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and wonderful God we serve. Amen.